0: Hello and welcome to Rear Primary Review, where we cover the latest developments in high yield, distressed debt, and bankruptcy, and feature discussions on issues affecting distressed debt, leverage finance, direct lending, high yield bonds, high yield municipals, covenants, private credit, and middle market companies. I'm David Zupkis. This week, Jim Holloway speaks to Morgan Dean, Associate Portfolio Manager, at Soundpoint Capital Management, to discuss decision-making in the current uncertain economic, credit, and rate environment. In our weekly review coverage, Monotronics, Venator Materials, Envision Healthcare, and others eye potential restructurings, Bittrex Files Chapter 11, and the NBA's Phoenix Suns are ordered to comply with the automatic stay in Diamond Sports Group. And as always, a preview of what's coming next week. It's Monday, May 15th. Good morning, and welcome to the
1: REORG Primary View, where we bring you insights from the smartest people in the business on issues affecting distressed debt, leverage finance, direct lending, high-yield bonds, high-yield municipals, covenants, private credit, private equity, in the middle market. I'm James Holloway at Reorg's Outpost on the steaming bayous of Texas, and it's my great pleasure to welcome Morgan Dean. Morgan is an associate portfolio manager on the Capital Solutions team at SoundPoint Capital Management, where she is tasked with providing liquidity solutions to stressed companies she and her team have deployed some 2.5 billion dollars of capital over the last few years soundpoint is a credit focused asset manager and pro forma for the recently announced acquisition from assured guarantee will have 47 billion in assets under management morgan has spent her entire career in credit which is after all the most interesting of asset classes and prior to soundpoint she worked at hps investment partners and got her start as a leveraged finance investment banker at bank of america She's a native Philadelphian, but currently a New Yorker. Morgan, welcome to the show, and thanks for making the time on what I guess is a hectic schedule.
2: Thanks so much, James. Happy to be here.
1: And uh, let me begin by congratulating you on your promotion to portfolio manager at SoundPoint this year. If I may ask, how has your day-to-day role changed?
2: Thank you, uh, James. Not much has changed, I'm afraid. I would say my formal responsibilities now include managing the entire portfolio, borrower concentrations, industry concentrations, correlations between assets, and deciding what opportunities to go after. That's what I spend a lot of my time thinking about.
1: Now, can you provide us with a quick overview of the types of borrowers and structures that your capital solution team targets?
2: Of course, we target first lien, primarily asset backed loans for companies experiencing a period of transition. Our check size is 100 to 600 million, and so far we've held all the risk underwritten. A typical borrower for us is a company running into a liquidity issue that needs something more complex than a bank or the traditional direct lending markets provide. Think about a business generating um, a mid single digits EBITDA margin that is working capital intensive. Cash flows aren't as resilient and likely the most attractive thing about this company is its customer base. So for this type of borrower, we end up doing a lot of loans backed by accounts receivables. And if you lend to receivables of Walmart, Volvo, GM, Amazon, you end up with a portfolio that looks similar to mine and with weighting more towards cyclical industries like retail, consumer, autos, commodities, et cetera. But those companies need financing now more than ever. Um, What I like most about lending against our receivables is that their cash generation has proved to be very resilient. Walmart pays their bills in periods of recession. They paid their bills during COVID and in normal business course as well.
1: Okay, And uh, on the subject of recession, we are certainly living in interesting times. And that's not necessarily a compliment. We have Fed funds and a 10-year Treasury yield at the highest since before the financial crisis, which seems like a lifetime ago now. Mortgage rates, rates, excuse me, at their highest in 20 years, so for over 5%. And the Fed signaling it's going to keep things higher for longer as it tries to squeeze inflation out of the system. Uh, We did, of course, seem to get a bit of relief with the CPI print this week, but one number does not a trend make. Is this kind of backdrop making your life easier or harder these days?
2: Great question. I think the job of projecting cash flows is harder for all of the reasons you've listed, James. I would add to your list increased banking regulation as a contributor to the landscape we're seeing. The asset-backed financing market for borrowers is primarily banked in the United States. What we have heard anecdotally in the market is banks pulling away from credits where there is a higher risk of liquidity crunch that could end up to an impart to an impairment on that asset back facility held by a bank. Um, I have a friend that's a relationship manager at a regional bank, and she was just telling me uh, how her job of uh, participating in revolving financings is harder and harder because the ROE hurdles keep getting raised. Banks value a deposit story, and if you can't offer this as a borrower, you will have more limited financing options. And what this means for asset managers at non-banks like myself is we're likely to continue to see quality flow into our market. As you mentioned, I started my career as a leverage finance investment banker during a period of rising shadow banks. And I do find myself having callbacks to that time a lot recently. Having lived in credit committee for bank for loans at a bank, I'm very aware of how banks think about risk. But if you just take investing in receivables back to first principles, what you should really be doing is rewarding customers when they're... Uh, rewarding companies when their customers pay early or on time, because times are good and your structure should really only start protecting you if customers pay late or don't pay at all, because times are not so good. And banks have static advance rates, static stress factors, and everything in my structure as a non-bank provider of the same type of loan is dynamic because to us, it makes sense to give a company more of its own cash if there isn't an issue. So simple things like that. Um, Another example uh, is like inventory solutions for commodity companies. And this will especially compel you, James, as a Texas native, but we see companies that produce things from oil and a lot of their inventory is pegged to WTI or Brent. Well, if oil prices tank, these companies want to buy more oil because it is cheap and they can't because their liquidity is being provided against the inventory they currently have on their balance sheet. And they actually have a liquidity crunch exactly during the period when they could be maximizing cash on hand. So situations like this make sense to us. So we'll customize a structure to, be, to give a company flexibility.
1: Okay. Thank you. Um, so what do you find yourself thinking about now?
2: We're especially focused on the exit of our deals these days, and I find myself thinking a lot about multiple paths to exit, Um, not just a refinancing, but a change of control, a filing, a liquidation. This is a focus for me for two reasons. Reason number one, um, as I've heard you mention with other guests, there's a heightened risk that companies run out of cash in the current inflationary environment with prevailing higher costs of capital. And reason number two is the competition for good credits is going to be higher in three years than it is right now. So I'd better be convinced of the credit story of our borrowers um, and that that credit story performs to plan or improves. And as private credit takes share from the liquid credit markets, the deal you hold now will compete with a liquid credit deal in three years. And those credits are more attractive across the board. So we've seen several instances over the last six months of large private credit managers taking a deal held by CLOs and writing a huge check themselves. As an investor, my competition for a dollar of refinancing capital not only competes for the merit of all borrowers within private credit debt, but public debt as well. Um, Given the dry powder that is pervasive in the the private credit market, it would be easy now for us to say, oh, in three years, if we're at a 60% LTV and the business has grown, another non-bank will take us out at a cheaper cost of capital. But we're disciplined and only investing in deals that offer other exit stories beyond this.
1: Okay, uh, now you you didn't mention dry powder just now, uh, the latest senior loan officer survey from the Fed did indicate a downward trend in credit availability, which and this of course follows the Noah's flood of liquidity that came with the Fed's pandemic response. This does not seem to be the course with private credit. And there's always a tug of war, I guess, between the need to deploy funds and the overall quality of the deal. Can you tell us how you balance those factors in an uncertain economic environment when companies are facing challenges on any number of fronts?
2: I couldn't agree more with the observation on tug of war of supply and demand, the dry powder of your competitors versus the quality of opportunities. You can see some deployment figures demonstrating private credit managers deployed less in Q4 of last year and Q1 of this year versus prior years. And in the market we're seeing borrowers borrower asks, become more aggressive again. We're being asked for things like covenant holidays, pick cures not serving as debt repayment. And in general, we're seeing borrowers value the ability to fix problems within their document instead of asking for an amendment. And the fear I have is that lenders feel behind schedule on deployment, and they deploy with less discipline and less regard for fundamentals. Um, James Pick Interest is a really great example of this. My group will do deals with Pick Interest, but there are hurdles that need to be cleared. So for example, if you take a $100 million principal deal that will accrue $25 million of Pick over the lifetime of that deal, you gotta run the returns in the 100 million principal deal at your normal fund pricing, S plus six, 7%, whatever. Say that's a return of 10 to 11% on the 100 million. The extra 25 million a pick must command equity-like returns of high teens at least because you're taking equity-like risk with no or little coupon while living in the loan. All this to say the fundamentals must make sense if you're going to do an all-pick deal or a half-pick deal. You need to break apart the components of value or else I think we'll find many people in the market are not getting paid for the risk they are taking.
1: Oh, okay, and any predictions for how dry powder is gonna impact other aspects of private credit, like fundraising?
2: <laughs> a Totally unbiased view, but I think we'll see more inflows into private credit. Um, We're getting double-digit returns due to SOFR increasing, number one. And if you were competing for a dollar in an alternatives bucket for an allocator, you had to compete with venture and private equity returns. And now the relative value story is easier to tell. And obviously, this is assisted by more liquidity in our market. Our deal tenors are shorter in private credit, and most private credit managers distribute quarterly. For allocators that have their stable of credit managers, I think you'll see inflows into more products within private credit because private credit is not just direct lending. It's rescue lending. It's NAV lending. It's ABS, et cetera. These products add diversification to a private credit strategy and often alpha to these asset class returns because there's less competition in these markets, all while doing all private credit was designed to do, which is to provide financing assurance, especially in times of market volatility.
1: Oh, very interesting. Okay, well, Morgan, thank you very much for your
2: time and good luck out there. Thank you so much, James.
0: For in-court coverage, we take a look at Bittrex, Diamond Sports Group, National City Media, and LTL Management. The Georgia-based crypto exchange Bittrex filed for Chapter 11 after becoming the litigation target of the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, which accused the company of operating as an unregistered securities exchange broker and clearing agency. Debtors received interim approval of a novel Bitcoin-based dip from ultimate parent Aquila Holdings at a first-day hearing, gaining access to a BTC 250 interim draw under the proposed BTC 700 facility. Judge Christopher Lopez has granted Diamond Sports Group's motion to enforce their automatic stay against the Phoenix Suns. The judge ordered the Suns to comply with Diamond Arizona's back-end rights under the party's expiring telecast rights agreement and voided the Suns' new agreement with Great Television and Kisway Mobile to the extent it interferes with their back-end rights. The Bankruptcy Court conditionally approved National Cine Media's disclosure statement this week, allowing the debtor to solicit votes for the plan. National Cine Media's counsel said that his client is still documenting a critical new advertising contract with Cineworld World debtor Regal Cinemas after announcing last week that the parties have reached a settlement in principle. The parties have a May 19th deadline to finalize the agreement. The U.S. Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit denied an unusual mandamus petition filed by the Official Committee of Talc Claimants, which asked the circuit court to immediately review and reverse the bankruptcy court's decision-staying non-bankruptcy talc trials against LTL's parent, Johnson & Johnson, and other non-debtors. Separately, bankruptcy judge Michael Kaplan denied talc claimants' motions to certify the litigation injunction ruling for direct appeal to the Third Circuit. If certification had been granted, the appeal potentially could have leapfrogged the district court and gone straight to circuit court. Monotronics, Venator Materials, Envision Healthcare, At Home Group, Diversified Healthcare, Trust, Qualtech, Robert Shaw, Cytara Technologies all round out this week's list of potential restructurings. Monotronics has begun solicitation of its prepackaged chapter 11 plan and disclosure statement. The company has an RSA milestone of today, Monday, May 15th, to file for chapter 11 in the U.S. Bankruptcy Court for the Southern District of Texas, and it targets an emergency date of June 30th. As of Tuesday, May 9th, commencement of solicitation... The plan is supported by holders of approximately 97.7% of 2019 take-back term loan claims, 71.9% of 2019 exit facility claims, and 72.8% of Monotronics equity interests, according to the DS. Venator Materials is planning to file Chapter 11 to hand over ownership to creditors in exchange for canceling debt. The chemicals producer faces a liquidity shortfall, near-term maturities, and falling demand for its products because of, sl- of slowing economic environment as well as elevated energy costs due to Russia's u- invasion of Ukraine. An ad hoc group of term lenders of Venator Materials is working with White and Case as legal advisor and Houlihan Loki as financial advisor, while an ad hoc group of crossholders is advised by Gibson, Dunn, and Lazard. Holders of at-home groups' bonds have begun to organize as the ongoing slowdown in home sales and limited discretionary spending by consumers eat into the Dallas-based retailers' liquidity. Discussions remain at the earliest of stages with alternatives such as an up-tier exchange or some form of new money transaction among those being considered. Liquidity is about $170 million, including roughly $15 million of cash. The company has about $120 million of trade claims and is working with PGT Partners as a financial advisor. An ad hoc group of diversified healthcare trust bondholders was organized with Aiken Gump as legal advisor and Piper Sandler as financial advisor in light of a May 2024 debt maturity and the risk of the proposed merger with office properties, income trust, or OPI falling through. The REIT, which owns healthcare properties, seeks to use the tie-up with OPI to fix its balance sheet problems because the combined company is expected to comply with financial covenants and gain increased access to debt capital. The company's highly restrictive debt documents prohibit it from refinancing its existing debt. However, the transaction, which is expected to close in the third quarter, is subject to shareholder and other customary approvals. Qualitics is exploring a Chapter 11 filing to hand over majority ownership control to creditors in exchange for canceling debt. The provider of construction engineering services to the wireless, wireline, and renewable energy industries previously entered into a forbearance agreement with creditors after skipping an interest payment due in March on its convertible notes. The company said last month that it will likely choose to obtain alternative sources of capital or a file for Chapter 11. Robert Shaw is executing a non pro rata upturning debt exchange, the latest in a string of transactions whose features are dubbed creditor on creditor violence. The electronic controls, switches, and valves maker launched a debt swap on Wednesday, May 10th for the wider lender constituency after striking an exchange with an ad hoc group of lenders holding 76% of the first lien loan due 2025 and 59% of the second lien loan due 2026. A Chapter 11 restructuring transaction, if pursued, could result in holders of first lien loans receiving 90% of the reorganized company's equity with 10% of equity utilized by the Management Incentive Plan, or MIP, as contemplated by, as, by an RSA filed by the company last week. The first lien lenders consisting of their pre-petition revolving credit facility lenders and their pre-petition terminal lenders would receive 9.5% to 80.5% of the reorganized company's equity, respectively. Rackspace and Malindrot reported earnings this week. Rackspace EBITDA in the first quarter fell 55% year-over-year on a 2% year-over-year revenue decline. The company burned $29 million of free cash flow in the quarter. Management expects results will deteriorate sequentially, but expects the second quarter to be its trough, followed by improvement in the third and fourth quarters. The company said that during the first quarter, it repurchased $23 million of unsecured notes using $10 million. Mallinca's first quarter revenue slipped 13.5% year-over-year year to $424.6 million, driven by a 25.8% decline in the company's specialty brand segment, including a 35.8% drop in Acthar gel sales to $82 million. Excluding a tax refund due to the CARES Act, cash from operations would have been negative $39.4 million in the first quarter, and free cash flow would have been negative $58.7 million. As of March 31st, Malacorat had $537 million of cash and cash equivalents, including restricted cash of $56.9 million. On the regional banking front, we take a look at PacWest, Bank Corp, SVP Financial Group, and new FDIC rules. PacWest disclosed in his 10Q that deposits declined approximately 9.5% during the week ended May 5th, with the majority occurring on May 4th and 3rd. The company cited reports in the financial news that the bank was exploring all of its options and having talks with potential investors and partners. As of Wednesday, May 10th, immediately available liquidity, on balance sheet liquidity and unused borrowing capacity, was 15 billion, which exceeded uninsured deposits of 5.2 billion, representing a coverage ratio of 288 percent. Liquidity was bolstered after the company pledged an additional 5.1 billion of loans to the FRB, according to the 10Q. SVB Financial Group and the Official Committee of Unsecured Creditors, as well as the Ad Hoc Group of Senior Noteholders and the Ad Hoc Crossholder Group have all objected to the Federal Deposit Insurance Corps' request to establish an escrow account to hold tax refunds of the consolidated tax group SVBFG shares with its failed banking subsidiary, Silicon Valley Group. According to the debtor, the disputed refunds currently controlled by the FDIC total approximately $10.75 million and anticipates receiving $291 million in additional tax refunds. The FDIC issued a proposed rule that would impose a special assessment on banks to recover approximately $15.8 billion in losses on the deposit insurance fund stemming from the agency's protection of uninsured depositors during the closures of Silicon Valley Banking Signature Bank. Some 48 banks with more than $50 billion in assets would pay about 95% of the special assessment, 65 banks with 5 billion to 50 billion in assets would pay 5% of the assessment, and banks with assets under 5 billion would be exempt. At a hearing before the House Financial Services Subcommittee on Financial Institutions and Monetary Policy, Subcommittee Chair Rep. Andy Barr from Kentucky argued that President Joe Biden's economic mismanagement resulted in heightened interest rate risk into the system, laying the groundwork for the failures of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank. Top red stories this week included, court dismisses Bedley Management's fiduciary duty punitive damages claims against former counsel Lowenstein, allows malpractice claims to proceed. UST finalizes a proposed one hundred twenty thousand X claim settlement with Donlin Ricano, hopeful an X claim resolution with BMC in the next few weeks. New York Attorney General proposes law targeting conflicts of interest in crypto industry. Bill would require independent audits of crypto firms. And now here's Kate Thomas from New York with the week ahead.
3: Hi, this is Kate Thomas, and here are some highlights of the week ahead, which kicks off on Monday with the CERTA debtor's combined plan confirmation hearing and trial in the debtor's adversary proceeding to validate the 2020 up-tier exchange transaction. The debtor's plan is promised on the validity of the 2020 transaction, and while they obtained a crucial victory in March when Judge David R. Jones agreed that the 2020 transaction was a permissible open market transaction under the 2016 credit agreement, the debtors are facing claims that the 2020 transaction reached the implied covenant of good faith and fair dealing. The debtors are also facing several objections to the plan's treatment of the debtor's indemnity obligations arising out of the 2020 transaction that would ride through the bankruptcy case unaffected. Then on Tuesday, the Bed Bath & Beyond debtors have their second day hearing where they will be seeking final approval of their debt financing, among other things. Upon entry of the interim order at the first day hearing, the debtors were able to access the full 240 million dip consisting of a 40 million new money single draw term loan facility and a 200 million roll up of prepetition secured obligations. Although the interim dip order was unopposed, certain unsecured bondholders suggested at the first day hearing that they may, quote, have an issue with, unquote, the dip liens on avoidance action proceeds that would be granted upon entry of the final order. Also on Tuesday, LTL management faces the Talc Claimants Committee's motion to suspend proceedings in its Chapter 11 case. The motion seeks to exclude certain matters from suspension, including the committee's derivative standing motion that seeks authority to prosecute claims to avoid both, both LTL's termination of the 2021 funding agreement with Johnson & Johnson and the 2021 divisional merger that created LTL, among other claims, as well as pending motions to dismiss the case. Moving to Wednesday, SVB Financial Group is scheduled to be in court seeking approval of proposed bid procedures to sell wholly owned non-debtor subsidiary, SVB Securities, the debtor's investment banking business. The debtor does not have a stocking horse and proposes a May 22nd bid deadline with subsequent auctions as needed. The debtor notes that since the announcement of its strategic review prior to the Chapter 11 filing, various financial and strategic counterparties globally have expressed interest in a potential purchase of SVB securities. Also on the schedule is the FDIC's motion to establish an escrow account to hold tax refunds of the consolidated tax group that includes the debtor and its failed banking subsidiary. The FDIC and the debtor dispute ownership over, quote, some or all, unquote, of the tax attributes. Wednesday also packs in three crypto hearings for the Voyager, Celsius, and FDX group debtors. First up, the Voyager debtors are seeking approval of liquidation procedures after toggling to a self-liquidation under their confirmed plan when the Binance.us group terminated the asset purchase agreement for Voyager's platform and customer accounts. Second, the FDX Group debtors have a hearing on a stay relief motion filed by the Joint Provisional Liquidators in the Bahamian Liquidation Proceeding of FDX Digital Markets. The FDX Group debtors contend that the motion is actually an attempt to claim FDX Group estate property as property of the FDX Digital Markets, quote, virtually empty, unquote, estate. Third, the Celsius debtors have a hearing on their motion to reimburse current and former employees for expenses incurred as cooperating witnesses and the debtor's numerous investigations. Lastly, also on Wednesday, the Best Wall Debtor defends yet another attempt to dismiss its bankruptcy case, the third from the Official Committee of Asbestos Claimants, which argues that the bankruptcy court must dismiss the mass tort case because bankruptcy courts cannot exercise jurisdiction over financially sound companies under the Bankruptcy Clause of the U.S. Constitution. In response, the debtor argues that bankruptcy eligibility is not a question of jurisdiction as the bankruptcy clause poses no insolvency or financial distress requirement, and that this latest argument is an improper repackaging of the committee's two prior dismissal motions, which were denied by the court in 2019. That's it for the week ahead. Have a great one.
0: Thank you again for tuning in to the Reorg Primary Review and our weekly review. Find all our podcasts on the viewer.com webinars and podcast page, as well as Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, and Amazon. Hope your families are healthy and safe. Have a great week, and see you next Monday.